bless our time in his word together tonight. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the truth. We thank you, Lord, for the testimonies. We thank you that these things are enshrined in eternity, that they will never pass away. We thank you for the volumes that they speak into our lives and the, the lens that it is through which we can see ourselves and see our path and see our world. And so we ask tonight, Lord, as we look at this most revealing of texts that, that shouts at us warning and blessing. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to hear your voice and see our lives in the context of these things. And we thank you so much for your love in it. Fill this place with your spirit, with your joy, with conviction, with hope, with love, and with life. And we just ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great advantages of being a pastor is the vantage point um, through which you can see life. We have this incredible privilege uh, that not only do we get to study truth and teach truth and communicate truth, but we also get to see truth lived out in the lives of people, both ourselves and also the people that, uh, that we oversee and that we uh, watch. And it's not infrequent that uh, I will find myself or one of the pastors here, we find ourselves sitting across the desk from somebody who comes into a, a total train wreck of a circumstance or a situation. I mean, they have just uh, had their whole world turned upside down, whether it be uh, in a marriage situation or whether it be a, a, another kind of family relationship or maybe a, a big screw-up in their professional life or, you know, just something that happens that's just a huge mess, you know. And as we talk and share and ask questions and hear story and kind of um, unpack everything and see how we ended up here, uh, oftentimes what happens is you can see very clearly from the bird's eye view that there was some point in the past where there was a decision that was made or a direction that was taken in the life of an individual and that led to the sequence of events that culminated in the train wreck that we're sitting here and now discussing, you know, and so we go through that and we talk about that and then, you know, there's always with God a, a, a but, but now. You know, and so now we're at a new place and there's a new path to take and, you know, we kind of pick it up from there. But you get to kind of see, you know, how these things play out. And, and it's amazing because what it is is you're watching truth lived out before your eyes. Because God gives very clear direction for every one of our lives and for every circumstance that we would come to in our lives. And if we do things God's way then we have safety, we have assurance and blessing that things are going to pan out and play out a certain way. But when we step in a direction or make a decision that's contrary to what God says, then it's only a matter of time before the train wreck comes. And unfortunately, usually it's years, not days. And so someone finds themselves in a situation that's the end of a path that they got on quite a long time ago. Now, another way that we get to see truth lived out is that sometimes people come to us when they're at the crossroads. And they say, this is the circumstance that I'm in right now. This is the, the choices that I have before me. This is what's going on. What do I do? And, and so what we do then, we say, well, what does the Word of God say concerning your circumstances? And what's the best way that you can honor God in making the decisions that are before you right now? And so you give your counsel. You bring them to the Word of God. You tell them to pray. 
and then they leave your office, and now the ball is in their court to make the decision. Which path are they going to get on? What direction are they going to go now in navigating these circumstances for their future? And you get to watch, and you see sometimes people, they say, I want to do things God's way. I want to follow his counsel. I want his will for my life. And so I'm going to do things to the best of my ability according to his ways and his leading. And you watch that life, and you get to have hopeful expectation knowing that truth is going to stand and that there's going to be blessing and glory waiting for them when they get to their destination, when they get where they're going. Conversely, sometimes you see people that say, well, I heard what you said, and I kind of understand what the Bible would say or what God would say, but my own reasoning and rationale sees things a little bit differently, and that somehow God's truth isn't going to really bear upon me in this situation, and so I'm going to go this way. And so they leave, and you watch them go down that path, and your heart kind of aches because they're thinking in their mind, like, God doesn't know what he's talking about. Truth doesn't really matter. This is going to work out just fine. It's not going to happen to me. But what you know in your heart is that ultimately, someday, near or far into the future, there's going to be a train wreck on the other side of the direction, the path that this person has set their feet upon, and truth is going to reign. It's going to rule out. In the ministry in the life of King David, there was a point when his son Absalom rebelled against him. And he kind of overtook the kingdom. And David became a fugitive for a season. He was kind of pushed out of his own home, palace, and kingdom, his crown. And Absalom, for a season, was in Jerusalem and trying to secure power for himself. And David had a counselor whose name was Hushai. And David said to Hushai, go and pretend to join yourself to Absalom, and we're going to pray that God will confuse his counselors and that you'll be able to help in this situation. And so Hushai comes to Absalom, and he says, I'm with you if you're the king. And Absalom says, okay, come on board. And then Absalom went to his chief counselor, a man named Ahithophel. And Ahithophel was the wisest man in those days. The Bible tells us that when Ahithophel gave counsel, it was though God was speaking himself. His counsel was so wise. And yet at this time, he finds himself on the wrong side of God, and he's giving counsel to Absalom, the enemy of David. And so Absalom says, give your counsel, and Ahithophel does. He says, you, you should do this, this, and this. Come upon David now with about 12,000 men. He's weary, he's tired. You'll, you'll overtake him. You'll, you'll put it out. This thing will be secured. And Absalom said, hey, I like it. But then he went to Hushai, David's counselor, and he said, you give counsel. What should you do? And Hushai said, the counsel of Ahithophel is not good at this time. He said, what you should do instead is wait Gather all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, 120,000 men, and have them search high and low throughout all of Israel. You know David, he's a mighty warrior, and if you attack him now in the night, he's going to be at his strongest, because that's how David is. And Absalom said, hmm, that actually makes sense. And he followed the counsel of Hushai instead of the counsel of Ahithophel. And Hushai knew, and Ahithophel knew, what was going to happen. And so Ahithophel, the wise counselor, went home, he got his affairs in order, and he hung himself, and he died. You say, whoa, that's extreme. Why? Here's why. Because this was a man who understood truth. 
He knew what worked and he knew what didn't. And when he saw the man he had aligned himself with go down a path that was going to lead to his ultimate execution because the throne would be restored to David, he decided rather than go through the shame and the pain of that torture that he would take his own life. What's the point? The point is that truth is going to stand. The outcome is going to stand according to what God says we must do things God's way. And thus we come to Genesis chapter 19. And what we come to is we come to the end of the road for this man, Lot, the nephew of Abraham. We know that Lot was a saved man, that he came out of Babylon with Abraham and made his journey with him. He knew the Lord. He knew truth. He knew right from wrong. But he had an opportunity to enrich himself by going into a sinful city and overlooking the iniquity of Sodom, thinking that it wouldn't affect him, he moved closer and closer to that city, that sinful place. He ultimately gets absorbed into the culture there. He loses his identity. He loses his wealth. He trades it in for a house in Sodom. He has a warning shot fired across his bow, and he's taken captive and hostage by some of the enemies of that land in those days. He's rescued by Abraham, but he doesn't get the warning. He goes back into Sodom, uses the influence that Abraham has now achieved to gain a position there in the city of Sodom. And now he's roped right into it. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 13, verse 11, that Lot chose for himself. Lot made a decision not based upon the will of God, not based upon what God wanted for his life or what would be best for his life, but what he thought would be best for himself. And now all these years later, you and I get to see the train wreck with broken heart, but with clear eyes and mind that we might be warned, that we might understand that God's ways are right and that God's will is good. And so we see this man, Lot, tonight, and we see the destination of his decisions and the direction that he chose to take. And thus we read, and it says in verse 1, it says that there came two angels to Sodom at evening. And Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. Now, in the last chapter, we saw these two angels accompanied by the Lord himself, and they came to Abram's dwelling place there in Hebron. And God let Abraham in on his business, what he was doing, that he was going to Sodom to see if the wickedness of the city was as bad as what he heard, and that if it was, the implication given to Abraham was that the city would then be destroyed. And Abraham begins to pray to the Lord, knowing that Lot lives in Sodom, and he appeals to God's mercy, and he says, God, you won't destroy the righteous along with the wicked, right? If there's righteous people in the city, you'll deliver them before you destroy it? And God says, yeah, don't worry. If there's righteous there, I will deliver them before I destroy it. And so now we see these two angels, God not being with them at this time, and they come into the city to fulfill the errand that began in the last chapter. But notice that when they arrive at the city, they're met by Lot sitting in the gate. Now, the gate of the city is the government of the city in the Bible. It's the place where contracts were made. It's the place where decisions were made. It's the place where the courts were held. It's the place where the legislative bodies would get together. 
And we see that Lot has a seat in the gate, meaning that no longer is he simply dwelling near Sodom nor living in Sodom, but now he's involved in the decision-making of Sodom. He's got a position in the government. And what that brings you and I to tonight is the first place that we knew Lot would ultimately get that he didn't think he ever would. The first destination from the decisions and direction that he took earlier in his life is that he finds himself much deeper and much further in sin than he ever intended to be. I'm sure that if you asked Lot way back at the beginning, if he ever thought that he would get to this place where he's part of the government of the city of Sodom, he would say, no way. I never thought that it would go that far. But yet it did. And sin always takes us places where we don't want to go. Sin always brings us deeper and further along a path of destruction than we want or that we would choose. We just went through the Easter story, the whole Passion Week with the kids, you know, at our tables. We went through it night by night. And Jesus told Peter, he said, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, what, Lord, me? <laughs> never. I'll die with you. Maybe all these will, but you don't have to worry about me, Lord. I will never deny you. And Jesus said, oh yeah, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny that you know me three times. And then as soon as Jesus said the words, it tells us in Luke's gospel, it says that Peter, first of all, followed afar off. Second of all, that he warmed himself at the enemy's fire. And that third, he was seated among the antagonizers, the enemies of the Lord. And that in that position, he denied that he knew him three times, just hours after Jesus said that it would happen. But there was a progression. First, he followed afar off. Second, he warmed himself. He comforted himself with the comfort that comes from the enemy. And third, he was sitting and fellowshipping with the enemies of God. Listen, anytime we begin to distance ourselves from God, we begin to follow afar off. We've taken step one towards getting deeper into sin than we intended to go. The second step we begin to find comfort and refuge in worldly things, earthly things. The enemy's fire, comfort in places that the world seeks comfort from rather than the comfort that comes from God. And then third, we find ourselves getting closer and more closely associated with the enemies of God, the worldly people. And we become disciples of the world rather than growing in our strength and discipleship of Christ. And before we know it, we're doing things that we thought we would never do. It's what happened to Peter. I was thinking this week about the, that scene in the Pilgrim's Progress where Hopeful and Christian are having a discussion. They're, you know, allegorical characters, and they're having a discussion about a man named Turnaway. And they're discussing how did Turnaway turn away? What happened to this man who once followed the Lord, but now he's turned away and gone back? And Christian gives his answer, and he says, well, this is what happens. He says, when someone turns away from God, he says, first they withdraw their thoughts as much as possible from the remembrance of God, death, judgment to come. Then, by degrees, they give up their self-discipline, such as private prayer, curbing their lusts, watching their conduct, regretting sin, and the like. Then they shun the company of lively, warm-hearted Christians. And after that, they grow negligent of public duty, such as hearing and reading the word of God, attending meetings, and the like. Then they begin to find fault with Christians, picking holes in the coats of the godly because of some weakness which they fancy they've seen in them, and casting aspersions on the good name of disciples behind their back. 
Then they begin to associate with worldly, loose, and evil-minded people. They also give way to carnal, lustful, and immoral practice in secret and seek to find such practice in those that are counted true that they may say they are their example. After this, they play openly with sin. Then, being hardened, they show themselves as they are, downright wicked. And now being bogged down again in the gulf of misery, they perish forever in their own deceiving unless a miracle of grace prevents it. This is a timeless word because you think it can't happen to you, but it happens, and it happens by degrees, and it happens to Lot. We see him sitting in the gate of Sodom. Well, it says as these men came to meet him, he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. He has enough of God in him that he recognizes that these men are from another world. And so he does them reverence. And he said unto them, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house and tarry all night and wash your feet and you shall rise up early and go on your ways. So he, he sees these guys. He knows where they're from. He knows where they've come. And so he says to them, uh, quick, guys, you know, don't talk to anybody. Don't do anything. Quickly, come to my house. I'll make you a meal. You stay in my house all night long, and in the morning you can be on your way. You want nothing to do with anything that's going on in this city. But it says that they said, nay, but we will abide in the street all night. We've come here to check out what goes on here in the square. We want to know what's going on in the city in the nightlife. But Lot, it says, verse 3, pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him, and they entered into his house. And he made them a feast, and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. But before they laid down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed or surrounded the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot, and they said unto him, where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them or have sexual relations with them. Wow. So these men aren't in the square of the city. The square of the city now comes to them. And it tells us that all of the men of the city, it says old and young from every quarter they come. Now typically when we go into a city or when we think about a city, we know that there's a certain demographic of that city's population that's probably given over to some pretty wicked things. We also know that there are probably some parts of that city that you don't want to go into because of the darkness that's there, the red light district or those areas that, you know, we just stay away from that part of town. But Sodom had become so corrupted that it isn't just one demographic of the population, it's the entirety of it. All of the men, both old and young, and it's not just one segment of the city, it's every quarter of the city. All of the men come to the house and they say, you know what's the story here in Sodom. Bring those men out that we might do to them what we do to visitors here in this city of Sodom. And it says that Lot went out at the door unto them and he shut the door after him. Now mark that in your Bibles. That Lot goes, he looks at these two angels and then he looks out the window and he sees all these men surrounding his house. He closes all the blinds. He says to the guys, uh, guys, you wait here. You don't want to know anything that's going on out there. I'm going out there. Lot goes out and he shuts the door. Now, there's a subtle warning in this, an indication for you and I. 
Any time that you have to shut God out of a part of your life to try to hide from him the truth of what's really going on behind the scenes, you're in a dangerous place. And that's exactly what's happening here with Lot. He has to kind of close this out. I don't want God to see this part of my life. I don't want God to see where I'm dwelling. If God saw me in this situation or in this setting or in this place, God would be ashamed. And so I'm going to close him out so that he can't see it in some way. I ask you here tonight just that the word of God might search us. Is there any place that you go? Is there anything that you do? Is there anything that you're involved in? That if Jesus himself showed up and said, hey, how's it going? In the middle of you doing that thing or being in that place, that you would be ashamed or you would be startled and shocked and say, oh, uh, Lord, I was just, um, let me close this out really quick. You know. Or Lord, oh, I'm in this place. <laughs> you know. If we have to lead a double life in order to maintain the image of being Christian, we're in a dangerous place. It's interesting that it says here that Lot baked unleavened bread for these men. First mention of that in the Bible. In the Bible, expositional consistency, unleavened, it speaks of sinlessness. It was clean bread, if you would. There's a show going on here. Lot's going, hey guys, come on in. I know how to put on the righteous appearance of things for you while you're in my house. Not even Abraham did that. Abraham's like, hey, I'm free. I, I've got Christ. I'm living for God. Lord, I'll bake you bread with yeast in it. I'll even give you meat and butter in the same meal. And I'll do it with the joy of my heart because, God, you're my first love and first affection. Nothing hidden, just open-faced. Beware when you have to hide. Lot shuts the door and he went out after him. And he said to, you, to them, he says, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Now, think about the two sides of his mouth that he's talking out of there. On the one hand, he's calling them brothers. He's identifying with them. But on the other hand, he's calling what they did wicked. And this was the buzzword. That's hate speech. Wickedly. Oh, you're going to judge our behavior? You're going to call the thing that we're doing here wicked? Behold, Lot goes on to say in verse 8. He says, I have two daughters which have not known a man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore came under they the shadow of my roof. Wow. What? Lot. Now, giving him the benefit of the doubt, I don't think that he really was thinking that he was going to have to do this, which he doesn't probably would have been better for them if, well, we'll get to that part later in the story. He's probably just trying to buy time or, or maybe trying to point out to them just the craziness of what they're doing in this thing and, and trying to, uh, you know, um, assault his guests in the way that they are, you know. But, but he, he's offering his daughters to them. I mean, this is crazy. This is messed up. But they said, verse 9, stand back, and they said again, this one fellow came in to sojourn, and he will needs be a judge. Now will we deal worse with you than with them? And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break down the door. So now they say, oh, you're going to come in here and you're going to judge us? Well, then we're going to take you in the same way that we were going to take these men. And they begin now to overpower him in this whole thing. This is an amazing thing that's going on here. 
Now, this is why Sodom and Gomorrah have become associated with the sin of sodomy or of the sin of Sodom that we would uh, consider the sin of homosexuality. These men that are burning in their hearts for lust, with lust, one for another. And people in our day and age will say, well, what's the problem with loving whom you're going to love? If someone is born with the inclination to love someone of the same sex, then who is God to judge? Or why would God say that that's wrong? And how should that be a sin? That's intolerance. That's hate speech. And we have to be tolerant. We need to be sensitive. Listen. The Bible says that when God made man, he made man in his image. Man is made in the image of God. But when God divided the male and the female, he took the one man that he made in his image and he separated that man into two natures, the male and the female. Then in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says that he put them together and he called their name, singular, Adam. The two joined together in marriage, ordained by God, is man made in the image of God. It's the union of the male and the female as one that represents man as the image of God. So when you take male and male and marry them, or female and female and marry them, what you've done is you've corrupted the image of God that he made man in. And anything that corrupts the image and nature of God is an abomination. So it isn't a preferential thing where God looks at it and he goes, ew, ew, ew. It isn't preference. It's that God made man in his image as a demonstration of his holiness, of his person, of his wholeness, his wholesomeness. And any time that's perverted in any way, that's considered an abomination. And thus, the sin of homosexuality is an abomination before the Lord. It's no compromise because it compromises who he is. And who God is will not be compromised. And thus Lot is correct when he calls it wickedness. Now, it's interesting. You know, in our culture and in our society, we will no longer say that homosexuality is wickedness. There was a time when we did, but we do not any longer. We've been numbed down to that. But we do still live in a time in our society now that we consider rape wickedness, don't we? I mean, rape is wickedness. I mean, we say that when someone brings their argument. We say, is it wrong for someone to rape another person, to force them? And almost everybody, except unless they're just trying to be stubborn because of their argument, everyone will say, yeah, that's wrong. But listen, even in Sodom, they didn't think that was wrong. Because part of what Lot is calling wickedness here is what these guys wanted to do to the men that were safely tucked inside of his house. They wanted to rape them. And when Lot called that wickedness, they said, who are you to judge us? If that's the way we feel we're going to express ourselves, then that's right before God. It's right within us. What's the point? The point is this. Is that when a society gives themselves to rebellion against God, there is no limit to the level of wickedness that they will embrace. At first, it will be heterosexual perversions. Then it will be homosexual activities. But it will end with the sky is the limit. I read an article today that said that 
kids in the upcoming generation are bored of the internet. What does that mean? It means that they have to find something new now in order to entertain themselves and to amuse themselves. Listen, there is no end. Once you turn away from God and the ways of God, it just gets more and more perverse. And what is right and what is wrong, that line just keeps on moving. With God, it stays right in the place where he set it up from the very beginning. Now, I love verse 10. It says, but the men, these two angels that came to Lot, it says they put forth their hand and they pulled Lot into the house unto them and then they shut the door. I wonder if they waited like two minutes. Right? Like, the one, like, opens it. It's like, wait, just wait. Just wait. <laughs> let's, let's just watch for one more minute. Lot's going, no! You know. But it says they pulled him in, and then they shut the door. And watch this. And it says, and they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. Now, listen. I'm not the, the smartest guy in the room by any stretch, okay? But if I'm doing something and all of a sudden I'm smitten with blindness, you've got my attention, okay? I enjoy my eyesight. But these guys are so inflamed in, in their passions and in what they're going after that even when they're smitten with blindness, they continue pressing on the door, going, no, we are going to do what it is that... that, that you know, we came here to do in the whole thing. They wearied themselves to find the door. And so now it's time for judgment. It says in verse 12. And it says, And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here in the city any besides, son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters? And whatsoever you have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out, and he spoke unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and he said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his son-in-law. Wow, this is amazing. There's an urgent plea now given from Lot to his family members that were there in Sodom to get out of the city because of the judgment of God. But at this point, Lot's lifestyle had become so contrary to the message that he is now seeking to convey that they literally thought he was joking. What they saw in this man was so contrary to what they heard in this man that they said, you're kidding, right? You're going to tell us that God is going to judge this city, right? You're going to tell us that we should repent and we should flee this place. You're, you're one of those people now that have the sandwich board that says turn or burn. You're one, you, you, you're one of those, Mr. Lot. And they laughed him to scorn. Listen, this is the second destination where we all knew Lot was going to end up when he made his decision and took his direction a long time ago. And that is that he has lost all credibility with his message and in his spheres of influence because of his lifestyle and the way that he's living. He has lost all credibility with his family, with his loved ones, with his peers because his life is so contradictory to what he preaches. Anytime that we lead a double life, that we're one thing when we're in church or around people or with our profession, but we're another thing around the people that we live and what they see within our lives. 
It makes our message completely impotent. Everything that comes out of our mouth means absolutely zilch and zero. Because our actions speak way louder than our words. And if we're not living up to the message that we're speaking, then the message that we're speaking is dead. And that's exactly what we see in the man Lot. He's been so consumed by the lifestyle of Sodom that his words are completely impotent. No credibility at all. Watch what happens. It says, And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters which are here, lest you be consumed in the iniquity of the city. You've got to move. You've got to get out. You don't understand the severity of what's falling. And while he lingered, the men laid hold on his hand, and upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and set him outside the city. Lot is in such a stupor in the position that he's in, so asleep in it, that they literally have to snatch him out, yank him out of the city, him, his two daughters, and his wife, because he was lingering. Do you notice those words in the verse there? It says, the Lord being merciful unto him. Do you know what mercy is? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace, the cousin of mercy, is getting what you don't deserve. That's the goodness of God when we don't deserve it. But mercy is not getting what we do deserve. So by saying that the Lord was being merciful to him, what it's saying is that if Lot got what he really had coming, he would have been left there in the city. But because of the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the love of God, Lot is brought out of the city even forcibly by these angels that are there. Now notice the instruction that they give in verse 17. It says that it came to pass that when they had brought them forth abroad, that he said, the angel, escape for your life. That's instruction number one. Escape for your life. Instruction number two. Look not behind you. Don't look back. Neither stay in all the plain. That's instruction number three. Get out of the plain, out of these five cities. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. And Lot said unto them, Oh, not so, my Lord. Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, I'm thick. But he starts to argue now with the angel. And he says, Behold, now thy servant has found grace in thy sight, and you have magnified thy mercy which you have showed unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. If I go, if I go into the mountains, I'm going to die. Behold, now, this city is near to flee unto, and it's a little one. Oh, let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. I want to go to this other small city. I don't want to go into the mountains. I'm not a mountain man. I'm a city guy. And he said unto him, now the angel speaking back to Lot, See, I have accepted you concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow the city for the which thou hast spoken. Haste thee, escape there, for I cannot do anything till you become hither. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Now, when I read this, I start to understand a little bit of what Peter was talking about in the New Testament when he said that angels look into the things concerning our salvation and they marvel. Because I look, at, I look at this scene and I see what's going on here and I see Lot and I see these angels and I see Lot arguing with an angel that's about to destroy five cities and begging that he might go into one of them and that one of those cities would survive. And the angel saying, okay, 
<laughs> Go, we'll destroy four out of five cities if that's the way it's going to be. And I can imagine what it's like for them. God, really? Them? You're going to... I don't get it. Short circuit. I don't, I don't get it. It blows my mind. But it amazes me here that they grab Lot by the hand and they take him out of the city before judgment comes. And the word of the angel is, listen, I can do nothing until you be safely tucked in there. This is a huge, huge passage, promise, truth for you and I to grab a hold of in the days that we live in. Jesus said that as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it also be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. In the days of Lot, there was wickedness going on in society, and the society was ripe for the judgment of God. Jesus also gave a warning concerning the days of Lot, the days that you and I are living in now. It's the second shortest verse in the Bible. It's Luke chapter 17, I think it's verse 32. And it says, remember Lot's wife. Why does he say that? Notice what it says. It says that the sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar, and the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him in disobedience to the command of the angel, and it says that she became a pillar of salt. The idea there in the Hebrew language is that she was lagging further and further behind, that she was continually looking back with longing for the city, not wanting to leave the life and the lifestyle that she was living in Sodom. And in her desire and affection for it, she was overcome by it, consumed in the iniquity of it, and she became a pillar of salt. You say, well, how does that connect to the warning that Jesus gave concerning the days of Lot and Lot's wife? We know the Bible says that we are not appointed unto wrath. That we endure chastisement and discipline from God. We go through his corrections and adjustments and his uh, shoutings to us and to our society as he seeks to get our attention. But when final judgment will come upon this world, God will be faithful to pull his own out because he will not judge the righteous alongside with the wicked. And just like Lot was snatched away, pulled out forcibly by the angel, so also you and I, it says that we'll be caught up in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump and we'll ever be with the Lord. But what Jesus warns you and I is that we're not to be as Lot's wife. That is that we're not to have ties and affections cares, heartstrings pulled by the things of this world in a way wherein we don't want to go to heaven because we're so in love with the things of earth. He said, remember Lot's wife, and we'll come back to that at the end of our study. Now it says in verse 27, and I'm so thankful for this contrast, it says that Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord, and he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and he beheld and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass that when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham, not as though he had forgotten him, but that he remembered his prayer. And he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in the which Lot dwelt. Now, amazingly, Abraham had no idea whether Lot got out or not at this point, but he does know that God came through and that God did, in fact, destroy the cities of Sodom. 
But the picture that I love in this is that you see this man, Abram, and it very simply states concerning him that he simply arose and he came to the place where he stood before the Lord. And so I ask you tonight, is there a place for you, like Abram, where you come and stand before the Lord? I see the stability of Abram as he comes consistently just to the place in his relationship with God. And I wonder if you and I can say the same thing. That tonight as we sit here and we listen to this record, is our life more reflected by this testimony of Lot, who's leading a double life, who's consumed in sin, who's going to be so in a stupor at the time of the end that he'll have to literally be snatched away by the angel almost reluctantly? Or are you and I as Abraham? faithfully, consistently pursuing the things of God, separated from the sins of this world, satisfied in our relationship with Him, stable and sound. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. It says that it is the will of God for you and I that after we have suffered a while, meaning we go through our trials and we learn what we need to learn, that God establish, strengthen, and settle you. And the heart cry of my life is, Lord, that's where I want to live. I want to be established in your purposes for my life. I want to be strengthened by your spirit, by your might. And I want to be settled in your will and in my relationship with you, not looking for something that's out there that's going to satisfy my life. I want to have it in you, Lord. It's amazing that you see the destination or the path that Abraham is on, the decisions that he's made. And he's coming to a destination, too, in a couple of chapters. What a contrast between Abraham and Lot. It says in verse 30, it says that Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountain and his two daughters with him. For he feared to dwell in Zoar. He changes his mind after he sees the explosion. And he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. And the firstborn said unto the younger, Our father is old and there is not a man in the earth to come in unto us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the seed of our father. Let's get our dad drunk, and then we'll sleep with him, and he'll get us pregnant, and we'll be able to now further his name, because no, no longer is there any men in the earth. It had been a long time since they had seen a man anyways, and they thought there were no more. It says, Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the seed of our father. And so they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he perceived not when she laid down, nor when she arose. That's a lot of wine. And it came to pass on the morrow that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay yesternight with my father. Let us make him drink wine this night also, and you go in and lie with him, and that we may preserve the seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he perceived not when she laid down, nor when she arose. Can you get the idea of the, the, the toll that Sodom has taken on these souls? I mean, you can, take the, you can take them out of Sodom, but you can't take Sodom out of them. That's exactly what's happened. They brought Sodom right into that mountain with them. Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father, and the firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab, the same is the father of the Moabites unto this day. And the younger, she also bare a son, and she called his name Ben-Ami. And the same is the father of the children of Ammon unto this day. And so, as we read throughout the rest of the Old Testament about the Moabites and the Ammonites, 
we're seeing the descendants of Lot that came when he impregnated his daughters in the time uh, of his drunkenness there after the overthrow of Sodom. This is a remarkable and amazing finish to the story of Lot. Because what we have in these verses here is we have Lot's final destination. This is the, the part where Lot comes into the pastor's office and he says, how in the world, how in the world did I get here? How in the world did I go from a place where I was wealthy, where I had servants, where I was living around family, where I had hope for the future, when I was under God's protection, I was under God's leading, I had servants and livestock, my business was being blessed, everything was looking up in my life. How did I get from that place to where I am now, where I am completely broke, completely destitute, I don't have one penny to, to call my own, I have nothing but the clothes on my back, I have two incestuously impregnated daughters, and I'm living drunk in a cave outside of the cities of the plain. How in the world did I get here? And he's sitting there and asking the question. And as the pastor talks to Lot and begins to uncover the steps that led him to where he is, it all goes back to Genesis chapter 13, verse 11, where it says that Lot chose for himself. That Lot chose for himself. He was living by the philosophy of Montgomery Burns, the richest man in Springfield, who when asked when enough is enough, he said, I do have a lot, but I would trade it all for just a little bit more. And when Lot had everything that Lot had, it wasn't good enough for Lot, and so he chose a path and a direction for himself that was contrary to the will of God, and it led him to the place of train wreck where he lost absolutely everything that he had. It was all gone. Lot chose for himself. You know, Lot won't be the last one in the history of God or the history of man to choose for himself something that he wants for himself. There were many contemplations and conversations held in the past week about the man Judas, one of the apostles of Jesus Christ himself. Called by Jesus, ministering alongside of him, hearing his words, seeing his miracles, partaking of the love and the grace, everything that Jesus was and what he encapsulated and represented. And yet he came to a point where he said, this isn't what I thought it was going to be, I'm not getting out of this what I want. And it says that he went his way. That's what it says concerning Judas. Just like Lot. That he went his way. And while Jesus was communing with his apostles concerning things to come, Judas was communing with the chief priests and the elders who were covenanting to give him money. And he thought, I'll get what I can out of this whole deal. And he took the 30 pieces of silver and he thought, I'm going to make something on this whole thing, this three years of my life. But you know what's amazing to me? Is that a few days, a few hours really, after he got the thing that he wanted when he went his way, he realized that it would never satisfy. And the guilt and shame that came along with getting what he wanted so bad, he brought it into the temple and he threw it down at the feet of those priests that had given it to him. And he said, this is the price of innocent blood. Have it back. And they said, we don't want it. That's blood money. You see to that yourself. And it says that Judas went out and he hung himself. The warning of the Bible is this. The Bible says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. 
Jesus would say, I set before you two ways. There's a narrow way that's straight as an arrow that leads to life, and few there be that find it. And there's also a broad path, an easy path, a pleasurable path, a desirable path. And it's wide, and there's many that go in there at, but its end is destruction. And the call of Christ, the call of a loving God to the people that he made in his image that he bled and died for is get on the narrow path. And so tonight as we look at this life, we see the culmination of Lot's decision and where it led him. It leads us to realize that every one of us that sit here tonight is on a path. We have all made decisions and we've all made our life a direction and we're going a direction. And understand this is that direction is ultimately going to culminate in a destination. And the question will be, what is it? Is it going to be what God has ordained and wants for your life? Is it going to be what Jesus said, life and life more abundantly? Or is it going to be a train wreck? You know what's remarkable about this? Is that Lot's story ends here. Saved soul, wasted life. And I wonder what's the testimony of you and I going to be? Is it going to be saved soul, came into the promised land, obtained promises, realized their purpose and their destiny, bore much fruit for my name, knew me, walked with me, persevered through the trials and the tribulations, endured the temptations, overcame the world, names written in heaven, pillars in the house of my God, or is it going to be saved soul, but wasted life? They chose their own way. They had so much. But they forgot about heaven. And they thought, oh, if I'm going to live, if I'm ever going to have the thing that I always wanted, I need to jump and get it now. Because if I don't have it now, I'm never going to have it. Listen, you're forgetting heaven. They forgot to give thanks. They forgot to realize the things that I'd done for them and the things that I'd given to them. And seeing only the thing that they didn't have, they failed to recognize the things that they did. And in their thanklessness, they became blind and they jumped off the path and they went down a direction and made a decision and grabbed a hold of something that they thought they wanted so bad, but ultimately they threw it on the floor of the temple and never promised or produced the promise that it, that it said that it would do in their life, and they ended in a train wreck, a shipwreck. Listen, church, the will of God for you is so good. The way of God is so right. The plan of God, the destination, what he has for you is perfect. But you and I are incapable of seeing beyond the vanishing point of right now. And thus we have a choice. Lord, what do you want for my life? Lord, where do you want me to be? Who do you want me to be with? What do you want me to do? Lord, lead my path. Draw me ever closer to you. Or, Lord, I'd really like to see this happen. Lord, do this. Lord, I want this. Lord, do it now. I'm going this way. The choices are ours, aren't they? Oh, that God would speak to us. The musicians can come as we close. The Bible says that we're living in the last days. And the Bible says that in the last days, the current of society will be, first of all, apostasy. 
Paul said in the last days, people will heap to themselves teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. And they'll turn their ears away from the truth and that many will be shipwrecked. Jesus said that the last days would be marked by hardened hearts that are caused by iniquity. Because iniquity will abound. The, the love of many will wax cold. Hearts are going to get hardened and cold. It's the reality of the days that we're living in. The Bible says that in the last days, there's going to be sin. There's going to be apostasy. There's going to be hypocrisy. People leading double lives. They're one thing in church, but there's something else when they're by themselves or when they're in their homes. And he warned, he said, remember Lot's wife. Oh, that we would be like Abraham tonight. And I implore you, by the word of the Lord, truth is going to stand. Truth is going to stand. God's ways are going to prove right. You're not the exception. If you say, well, I can do this and I'll get away with it and it's not going to happen to me, it's going to happen to you. But if you, like the Bible says, with faith and patience and perseverance, follow God faithfully, you're going to obtain the promises. His coming is so near. His coming is so near. So God, give us wisdom. Help us. And if you're here tonight and there's just simple things maybe that need to change, some decisions that you made at some point, you've gone down a road, it's always harder to go back and to make it right. But it's always better than to go forward and wait for the train wreck to come. And it will come. And I implore you, by the will of God, by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, be on the narrow path. Paul said, see to it that you be found of Him in peace, without blemish, spotless, ready. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for the truth of these things. Thank you for the testimony of Lot. Thank you for the testimony of Judas that speaks to us, that implores us. Help us, Lord, to hear your voice in it. And we ask tonight that you would give us clarity, Lord, each one of us for our path, where we are right now. Oh, Lord, help us. I pray for any that are here tonight that are caught up in some sin, that are further along the road than they ever thought that they would be. I pray that by your mercy and grace you would set them free from the snare of the devil. And I also pray tonight for any that are here that don't know you personally, that have yet to be on the narrow path, that have yet to know you, Jesus. I pray tonight that you would reveal your truth, Lord, in their hearts. The conviction of your Holy Spirit would fall upon them. That they would recognize their need for salvation and for a Savior. And that they would hear the voice of a loving shepherd, good father. And that they'd open their heart to the truth tonight. So I ask you just in the quietness of your own heart right now, without hands being raised or without coming forward, but if you would just silently respond to God in the stillness of whatever He's speaking to you right now, that you would just say, yes, Lord. Lord, the things in my life that have such a hold on me that I don't even know if I can let go of them, Lord, I don't know if I'm willing, but I'm willing to be made willing. That's you tonight, that you would just in your heart say, yes, Lord. I'm willing to be made willing for the sake of your good call upon my life, for the sake of your will being done. 
it's you tonight that doesn't know Jesus Christ personally yet, for whatever reason, having never heard, or maybe you've turned away and you're apostate, 